Approximately 32 million people in the United States work outdoors in industries such as construction, transportation, sanitation, agriculture, groundskeeping, and emergency and protective services. Such workers are at disproportionately high risk for heat-related illness. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Rosemary Sokas, a professor of human science at the Georgetown School of Health and a professor of family medicine at the Georgetown School of Medicine. Dr. Sokas has co-authored a perspective article about protecting workers amid the climate crisis. Dr. Sokas, what's known about who works outdoors in the United States and the conditions under which they typically work? As you noted already, a lot of people work outdoors. The people who work outdoors tend to be disproportionately people of color. They tend to be disproportionately lower wage workers, although obviously not exclusively, but you have the largest group are construction workers, followed by many other delivery workers and the others that you've already mentioned. So the characteristic of outdoor work is typically that it involves a certain amount of physical exertion. And the physical exertion combined with the increased temperature in the recent years has been problematic for larger numbers of workers. In fact, how common is heat-related illness in this population? Well, we really don't have an accurate count. The Bureau of Labor Statistics keeps records of fatalities and heat-related injuries and illnesses, but the collection process is limited. In general, they are more accurate when you talk about fatalities, and they've been counting about 40 fatalities per year for the last recent number of years, but that's the tip of the iceberg, frankly. Fatalities that don't get identified immediately as caused by heat stroke are not included in that, and the estimates when you add in people who have, for example, maybe you have someone who passes out from heat syncope and they fall off a roof or a ladder, or simply as the temperature increases, the number of slips, trips, and falls increases. So none of that is captured when you're talking about heat-related fatalities. And heat-related illnesses similarly are significantly undercounted. So we think actually that we're exceeding a thousand deaths per year in heat-related fatalities or heat-associated fatalities. And the number of significant heat-related injuries is orders of magnitude greater than that. What conditions predispose people to heat-related illness and what kinds of long and short-term health problems can it cause? So it's very new, some of this information, and very old, some of the other information. So we know that, for example, young, healthy people can die from heat stroke if they really, 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 really push themselves. And so there's a huge attention paid to athletes, for example, and in the military, young military recruits. So we know that nobody is immune from heat stroke, but that people at age extremes are more susceptible to fatal heat outcomes. And that as you age, you acquire a whole lot of conditions where heat stroke becomes more likely, as well as non-age related, obviously pregnancy, for example increases your baseline metabolic temperature and then increases your potential risk for developing heat-related illness. But obesity will do it. Hypertension does it. Cardiovascular disease. We know that diabetes mellitus will also. There's a variety of neurologic conditions. So there's a very large list of conditions that predispose people to worse outcomes. It's not that you can't work with those conditions, but that 
you have to sort of modify your work activity to be healthy while doing it. And then the outcomes are really becoming better known. This is where the information is pretty new. We used to think, okay, you survive heat stroke, which is a terrible disease. I mean, it's awful and it's been around forever. But we used to think if you survived it, you were fine. You either died or you got better. That was years ago. Now we understand there's some really excellent research. Some of it's from the military, some really good epidemiologic studies out of Taiwan, where pretty much the entire population has good medical record keeping and is tracked. So one of the things we know is that if you survive an episode of heat stroke, you're more likely to experience heat stroke in the future. But for example, we also have recently in the last maybe 15 years been finding out more about end-stage renal disease, which occurs in epidemic proportions in certain parts of the world. For example, in Central America, in some places in North Africa and Sri Lanka, there have been these reports of chronic kidney disease of unknown etiology that's associated with heavy work in very hot circumstances. And heat contributes to that. It may not be the sole cause of that. There may be some muscle breakdown and some other exposures, but heat contributes to that. But what we found out from the studies in the longer-term epidemiologic studies in Taiwan and in the military is that people who survive heat-related illness severe enough to require hospitalization are significantly more likely to develop cardiovascular disease and die from it over the succeeding 8-10 years, significantly more likely to die from end-stage renal disease significantly more likely to have all-cause mortality as well as ischemic stroke mortality. So we know that. And we also know that in areas where there have been heat waves that have produced population increases in heat stroke and heat fatalities, that all-cause mortality also goes up. There's a very nice study out of British Columbia where they had that terrible heat episode several years ago where they, in addition to the heat stroke deaths, there were numbers of other types of deaths that increased during the period of time when you compared it to the preceding five years without this kind of extreme weather event. And there you see increases in neurologic diseases. Schizophrenia is a major pre-existing condition that predisposes both to heat stroke and to all-cause mortality during this period which essentially doubles the baseline rate of mortality for the period of the extreme heat event. You say in your perspective article that there are no federal heat safety rules and that existing state regulations have important shortcomings. At the federal level, what's the current outlook for a federal heat safety standard? Well, there's a lot of commitment and there's a lot of effort that's taking place. The current administration has really promised to have this done. The trouble is that OSHA is a very small agency that's beset by a number of challenges that range from the challenges that the business community typically shows for any kind of regulatory activity, as well as some court-related challenges from past decisions and requirements that Congress has put into place. So right now, they're in the process of looking at what small businesses think of their regulatory approach. And as you might imagine, there are a number of potential pitfalls there because small businesses typically really are mostly worried about the bottom line and have traditionally 
been the place where most occupational illnesses and injuries occur because they simply don't have the resources some of the bigger ones do. But if you're catering to the small businesses, then you have challenges in terms of establishing regulations. And and that happens at the state level as well. There's only a few states that actually have it. OSHA has tried very hard. They've got a national emphasis program. They've got lots of materials on their website for employers as well as worker education materials. They don't really address the two areas where we raised concerns. The areas where we wanted to point out the deficiencies, even in wonderful states like California and Oregon and Washington state that have these good regulations, those regulations And the National Emphasis Program really emphasized that you should have available cool drinking water, rest areas, and shaded rest areas. So that's all excellent. They give you the amount of water you should have per person. They tell you the temperatures at which this should all kick in. So all of that is really good. And the states are where the action is currently happening, even though OSHA is trying very hard. They just are unlikely to succeed within a couple of years, unfortunately. But the pieces where they're missing are the importance of medical oversight. There really needs to be, in many of the earlier OSHA standards and some of the current ones, like silica, for example, there are requirements for medical oversight. Now, even for something like if you wear a respirator, there's a requirement for medical oversight to make sure that you're physically fit to wear a respirator. It's very minimal. The employee fills out a checklist, and if they check off certain things, then that gets them into a face-to-face meeting with a clinician. So a similar requirement for heat-related illness, to prevent heat-related illness, is really important because, as everybody knows, there are a huge number of medical conditions as well as medications. So your antihypertensives, some of your neuroleptics, I mean, all of these medications may have the potential to make people a little bit more susceptible. That's way more information than the employer's going to know, right? And things like substance use disorder, for example, incredibly important for making people vulnerable. And that's the kind of stuff that they might be willing to share with a clinician, but not with their employer, for sure. So these kinds of things need to be looked at and be part of the regulations going forward. The second place where the regulations have not been as aggressive as they need to be is in the whole issue of acclimatization. So we know that as people acclimatize, you change your sweat composition, you change your ability to kind of address and deal with the heat. And that doesn't happen just because you're in a hot environment. You have to be working into that hot environment, but carefully and slowly. So the rule of thumb is every day in the week, you increase by 20% the amount of work that you're doing. till by the end of the week, you're at a full workload capacity in hotter temperatures. So that's an acclimatization that's really been demonstrated to be important. And also when the temperature gets hot enough, even acclimatization is not enough. You need to have more rest breaks. And so every hour at certain temperatures, there's a work rest break cycle that the military and that NIOSH and others have developed that are available for people to look at. And 
these are based both on what's good for the individual, but also what the individual is actually capable of doing without getting into more hazards. The problem with the existing standards and with what OSHA is currently discussing is that they're very reluctant to tell employers that people shouldn't work so hard. So they're very reluctant. They'll say things like, well, for acclimatization, the supervisor needs to keep an eye on the new guys, you know, until they're acclimatized. Well, that's not enough. They'll say things like, every two hours, there needs to be a 10-minute rest break. Well, depending on the temperature, that's certainly not enough. So the medical piece and the work organization piece both need to be addressed. And again, they elicit opposition because there's costs associated with that. One of the things I would like to mention is that when they do these work rest cycles, they've done studies, physiology studies in laboratories with typically healthy young people, and they find that actual work capacity, stroke volume, the ability to actually uptake oxygen diminishes by a certain amount. So if you have the work rest cycle, you're actually preserving a little more of the physiologic capacity for productivity so that it's not such a trade-off. It's not such a, oh, it's only for the worker's health, but the employer is not going to have the work being done, actually. It's kind of inevitable that when the temperature gets really high, people's ability to do that level of physical exertion is just not there. So that's one of the important things that the regulators need to keep in mind and the business community needs to keep in mind. And for physicians, what we need to keep in mind is to tell our patients, listen, don't try to prove yourself when it's hot outside. Don't try to show that you're the, you know, the fastest, the strongest, the whatever. Take it easy. Take your rest breaks. Don't try to show off, basically. And you see that in some of the statistics of who dies on the job. You die on the job most often the first couple of days on the job. So it's really the new person. It's the new person who's not acclimatized and who's trying to really show that they can do the job. And that ends in tragedy sometimes. Thank you, Dr. Sokas.